The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special, special, special guest. What's your name again? Paul Mitchell. <laughs> Just like the shampoo. <laughs> that sets the tone for the whole podcast. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. This is a very serious podcast. It is. It's totally serious as we can because we're all dressed in three-piece suits today, as we absolutely. can tell you. Okay, it's only two days since the election, but there are all kinds of things to talk about in this. One, uh, the youth vote that didn't happen. Uh, two, the Biden effect. We, uh, Elizabeth Warren just dropped out. What does that mean for Sanders in terms of support or not? Uh, and California, do we know yet what kind of uh, what the figures are? We've got some early returns. I saw yesterday maybe three million votes had been counted. Not much more than that. What, what's the numbers on the vote count so far? Yeah. So, um, so first off, to address that, the point in time where we're at right now, this afternoon, uh, shortly after this podcast goes up, so maybe while people are listening to it, there will be a, a preliminary number put out by the Secretary of State's office okay. as to the unprocessed ballots. Um, uh, right now, if you look at who, what the vote tallies come to right now, yeah. last time I looked, it was like 5.3 million. And most of us were expecting about 10 million ballots to be cast, so we're probably looking at four and a half or so million outstanding, so that's my guess as to what's going to show up on the report tonight. What, 10 million what? by this time, by this point in time? No, we're just saying like total turnout we were expecting for the primary around 10, 10.5 million ballots cast. And, and that right works now, out to the about 50%? Is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah, 49, 50%, depending on how much same-day registration there is, where the voter file... The voter file right now is 20.5 million. It might go to 20.8 with all the same-day reg. We're uh-huh. expecting about 200,000 same-day regs. So um, we'll get a better sense of total turnout. Um, there is kind of a sense because of the results and what happened that potentially there wasn't this surge electorate among younger and Latino voters. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still won't know that until the counties uh, get done with all of their processing of the ballots and tallying all that, this canvas period. And then maybe in two months or so, they're going to get around to flagging the voter file with who actually did vote. And then we'll be able to do some analysis, you know, in a couple months that says, okay, this was the composition of the electorate. These are the voters that turned out. And from that kind of make some judgments. But um, I mean, I think the big message uh, for most Californians who are still kind of like waking up from this this yeah. rush over the last several months um, is that the March primary mattered. Like there was all this concern when uh, Ricardo Lars bill was passed and the governor signed it kind of quickly to convert our election from being a June primary to March in yeah. presidential cycles. Uh-huh. And there were all these things people said. Like, first off, um, you know, a California early a California primaries never matter, so it's kind of a waste to even try. Or um, putting our primary early is a waste because we wouldn't be able to have an impact in the actual race uh, this early. Um, or candidates wouldn't spend money here, or candidates wouldn't visit here and campaign here, or candidates just from a selfish, like, California political staffer perspective, like, campaigns aren't going to, like, hire staff here. Um, you know, California's just going to be an ATM. All these things, but just, like, you can just run down the list of whatever metric is out there for what the early primary move was supposed to do, and we saw record spending. 
It might have been largely from one billionaire, but still <laughs> record spending in California. We saw so many people getting hired by these campaigns that, I mean, you couldn't throw a rock outside of Chicory without hitting somebody who was, <laughs> who was hired by the Bloomberg campaign, right? Yeah. Um, uh, we saw more candidate visits, hundreds of candidate visits. Pete Buttigieg did 75 candidate visits here in California. It was like he was sleeping on... And only eight of them couch. were wine caves. Well, no, <laughs> only well, they got to protect our wine caves. Um, so, uh, you know, the... And then the question of did California matter in this primary? I mean, California was the reason why this crazy dramatic finale even occurred. You know, the weeks leading up to this, what up to Super Tuesday, what was looming over kind of the Democratic establishment was looking at California, and we had three polls the Capital Weekly poll, John, that you mm -hmm. did. Uh, the uh, LA, LA Times poll that's PPI, that is uh, Berkeley IGS, the former uh, Mark DiCamillo, the former director of the field poll, runs yeah. the Berkeley poll, and the PPIC poll. So three major polls in the weeks leading up to Super Tuesday that showed one thing in common, and that was that Bernie Sanders was probably going to win all 144 of our statewide delegates, and he was going to dominate in all the congressional delegates and essentially walk out of California and Super Tuesday with enough delegates to basically lock up and guarantee that he would have the plurality going into the convention mm -hmm. and set up the stage for him to potentially have an outright majority before going to the convention, even before the superdelegates are allocated. And it was like on the line. There, was, there were two scenarios going into Super Tuesday a week out. And that was either A, this party decides, in quotes, theory of elections in America, which is that that there would be some consolidation behind an establishment candidate mm -hmm. or complete mayhem when all of the candidates in that kind of establishment set, and I'm including Klobuchar, Buttigieg uh, in that, um, that they would all split the vote and allow a, uh, a candidate who's, you know, pulling 35% to win all of the delegates, and at least not all the delegates, but like the vast majority, which that's what happened in 2006 with the Republicans. Yeah, exactly. The Republicans, there's a whole bunch of literature out there about how the Republicans in 2016 kind of disproved this quote-unquote party decides theory mm -hmm. because the party in that case wasn't able to get their SHIT together and, you know, corral the establishment voters into like a Michael Rubio or a... Uh, or Marco Rubio or uh, uh, Kasich or something like that, or even Jeb Bush kind of create an establishment candidate. The establishment lost in the 2016 election. It seems as though the establishment is winning in the 2020 election cycle. And that change, that dramatic, like, you know, whiplash that we had from South Carolina to the dropping, to Pete dropping out, mm -hmm. to Klobuchar dropping out saying she was going to endorse Biden, to, to, to um, Pete going and endorsing Biden, mm -hmm. to, you know, and that's even forgetting Steyer dropping out, you know. Um, Did Steyer that, endorse? I don't know that Steyer endorsed, mm -hmm. but, you know, and now out post-California, Bloomberg dropping out and endorsing Biden, today Warren dropping out. Mm -hmm. That massive, you know, shift in this electorate, a, or in this campaign, a, a campaign that started with 29 candidates, that, you know, had... Most of whom seem to be on the California ballot. Yeah, and that had these massive frontrunners that people, 
people who, uh, you know, at some point in this election cycle were kind of the darling of the election cycle, um, you know, this consolidation, all that stuff happening. Um, it was because of California's March primary. Uh, about 30% of the delegates that are – about 30% of the total universe of Democratic delegates, that now has been decided, more or less. I mean, the numbers have to – still have to be calculated. Yeah. So about 60% of the Democratic convention delegates are still out there. So does Biden's momentum carry through from Super Tuesday or does – Sanders already in Michigan. I guess the other candidates are as well. Yeah. So are we going to see this Biden surge – Continue, or are we going into an area? Michigan has a lot of interesting political factions there, very heavy organized labor, very heavily black, rural areas, conservative, I assume conservative Democrats there, Biden's there now, excuse me, Sanders is there now. So, what happens going forward? Do you have any notion, notion of that? Well, um, I don't want to predict what's going to happen going forward, but I will tell, I will kind of set the stage as to what I think we're going to see. Mm -hmm. And um, just to clarify, the next, next big set of elections next week, correct? Oh, yeah, we've got things coming up in yeah. 10 days or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so uh, the argument for each of these two remaining campaigns, Biden and Sanders, Biden's argument is that he can be a nominee who will bring different groups together, a consolidator, um, a kind of a coalition candidate, a candidate that can have the establishment and then win the support from moderates and maybe even get crossover voters. And that's his argument in the primary and that's his argument in the general, right? Um, Sanders, different argument. I can grow the electorate. I can bring in less frequent voters. I can mobilize young people. I can provide a message in this populist vein that allows me to build a base that is stronger, louder, more, you know, kind of hardcore and that I can use that to win. And now it's a race between those two theories, right? Um, going forward, uh, Biden's challenge is going to be to keep together this kind of coalition that he's put together of largely establishment, but also um, in kind of a broad, wide set of the Democratic electorate. And, and Sanders' challenge is to take this kind of extremely strong, hardcore support that he has and both try to potentially expand that to get him into a position where in a heads-up race he can get a majority. Right now he's you know, clocking in that 35% super solid. He needs to expand that. And then also potentially expand it by getting in less frequent voters, people who might not even be on the pollster's you know, phone list. So, so in the 18 uh, votes we've had so far, what does the the data from those votes tell you about their messages. What do you, do you think that, that is encouraging to Sanders, encouraging to Biden, encouraging to both, as far well, as the actual, how much of that's actually playing out in real life? Yeah, so um, I think on Super Tuesday, San, uh, Biden's message of kind of this consolidation, that w took, that won, right? I mean, that swept states where he wasn't even campaigning that winning texas is an example is a perfect perfect place to look where you know sanders had a great argument that he was going to be able to get out latinos and young people and expand the electorate and win texas and by seeing biden win texas it was basically an argument that that the biden strategy has more upside um so but to put it in context that biden strategy caught momentum in just like a wave um, 
you know, it caught momentum and rose and rose and rose and rose and rose. And it basically peaked. It was almost like perfectly timed for Tuesday, right? Because it was almost within a media cycle, you know. Uh, people on Friday morning had one total vision of the race. Multi-way candidates, bunch of, you know, splitting of that base. After Saturday, when he, you know, won and it was pretty apparently a pretty large victory, things started to, that, mm-hmm. that swell started to rise um, that as, South Carolina primary was a huge deal. And it Biden's was endorsement is amazing. It just sort of triggered. It did. It just started this whole things. Over. Yeah, it was started this whole domino effect, and and so we saw this rise in this message about Biden's electability uh, and his ability to create kind of this coalition, his ability to consolidate the mm-hmm. establishment coming out of South Carolina, and it just peaked and peaked and peaked going into Super Tuesday with all these other events happening. I mean, you couldn't. You couldn't time it better. And then, you know, Super Tuesday came at the perfect time. Mm-hmm. If, if, if this had happened and then we still had 10 more days of campaigning until uh, Super Tuesday, we might not have seen the same impact mm-hmm. um, because other things would have intervened media cycle-wise. Um, and so the question is, what happens, you know, when we get to later primary states? Does this... Uh, message that Biden that that's, that Biden has still kind of carry forward. Um, it'll be interesting to watch. And fortunately for us, another benefit of the early primary, we get to just sit back and watch now. It's uh, it's a lot less stressful. There was uh, I saw one exit poll that said in no state did Sanders uh, win more than twenty percent of the young vote. And in most wait, states, it was wait, only fifteen percent. San- that's a wrong. That's that. Sanders. Talk about Sanders. That's okay. totally wrong. In no state did people younger than thirty account for more than twenty percent of the electorate. Oh, oh, okay. based on exit Got polls. This based on exit polls, and in most states, they accounted for fifteen percent or less. Yeah, so what that's telling me is that Sanders, who we've been reporting forever and ever and ever, is this. Major magnet for young voters didn't work out that. I mean, he said that, of course, in Burlington, yeah. it didn't work out. But my question would be, what happened to young voters? Is it again traditionally younger voters don't vote, or what happened? Do you think? Well, yeah. I think in in, uh, in California, the number I saw was thirteen percent youth turnout. Is that, is that so? Um, I come at it from a different angle, and that is that I wait for the counties to actually flag the voter file and put yeah. that data in. And then we actually start to analyze because a lot of these exit polls can be completely misleading. Mm-hmm. We saw, as an example, uh, uh, Jerry Brown went out and touted high youth turnout when he had one of his ballot measures um, pass uh, a couple cycles back. And then when we actually looked at the data, there it wasn't there, but the LA Times had an exit poll that said it was a really high youth turnout. Exit polling is uh, tricky because, you know, what they do is they go – to polling locations and they try to get a representative sample and they also sometimes now in California, especially with all the early voting, they do a sample of people who vote by mail Mm -hmm. and they try to configure like, here's what the likely result was and then here's the subgroups. It, what ends up happening is after they've done the exit poll, like maybe in a month, they'll adjust those numbers to match what the final actual result was. And it's unlike traditional polling where traditional pollsters come in and they make a presumption about the likely electorate and then they poll and they wait to that likely electorate. In exit polling, they do these polls and then they say, well, because of what we saw as this result, this must have been the composition of the electorate. It's Uh kind of a backwards thing. So I hate seeing like 
exit polling used for determining what the, the composition of the electorate was, especially since we'll have a That's tool to do that in a couple months. I should do those at the AP, you know, and it was so much fun in real time. Even if they were inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it was it's so fun. much fun. Well, the story time. of politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The story of politics. But it was, it was really interesting, rather than doing, you know, writing about the results of a race, yeah. to write about the components of the race yeah. and which voters were doing what, demographically which voters, wealthy, poor. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was kind and of And I think the polling could be useful for, like, you know, high-income voters were voting based on this issue and low-income voters were voting based yeah. on this issue. I think some of that stuff can be interesting, and there's not another source of that data. Yeah. Um, but with something like, what was the composition of the electorate? I always tell reporters and, and other people looking at it, just be patient. We'll find out. It'll be, maybe it'll be 90 days from now, but we'll have actual hard data on who did participate. Mm-hmm. And that'll be really interesting to look at. Um, one of the things, by the way, that we're really interested in is is the composition of the electorate that is still yet to be counted, those voters whose ballots are still sealed and signed and ready to be opened by county registers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got potentially, like we were saying, we'll find out tonight, we've got a few million to four million, maybe five million ballots still to be counted. And the composition of that is going to help determine whether school bond passes. It's going to help determine some of the – it will obviously help determine the allocation of delegates um, in this presidential race. It will help determine some of these competitive races that are going on for the legislature and and even local races, kind of the you know who's on top. Um, there's a lot of things still it's like uh, that are outstanding. And if somebody could just tell me the the, the composition of that remaining maybe four and a half, maybe five million voters, uh, it would go a long way for us being able to guess, as an example, what happens with the school bond. Is the turnout? Um Interesting to you. I mean, is, is it average? Is it if we've got twenty point six million registered voters, and maybe the total tally is going to wind up being ten million or something? So we're at about half, fifty percent. Mm-hmm. We've had primaries with turnout was a lot less than that. Yeah, but, and we've had primaries. So it's there is this funny thing about talking about turnout in California nowadays because we've always considered turnout to be. This is going to sound simple, but who votes divided by who's registered? Yeah. Right. Um, one of the challenges. Yeah, this is how you do it. It is how we do it. But the problem is that who's registered the denominator. There's been this like denominator inflation because of our huge amount of voter registration. So we've mm-hmm. gone from like 2016, like 18 million voters to like 20, maybe almost 21 million voters now. And so that denominator is so much bigger. And this is because of the motor voter. This stuff. is because of automatic voter registration, the DMV thing, yeah. you know, and all, and also the growth of online voter registration and all this. So um, we have this denominator that's been growing, growing, growing. So when you say, oh, it's 50% turnout, 50% turnout in uh, 2016 would have been, you know, just under 9 million voters. 50% turnout in this election could be 10.5 million voters. Um, so what we're actually expecting is uh, a likely kind of 10 million range for total turnout. It ends up being about 48% turnout. In terms of percentage turnout, it's almost the same as 2016, hmm. um, but it's uh, a million and a half more people. And then we look at 2018 or 2008, which is interesting. There was a really high turnout in 2008. And if we're right with this 10 million figure, it is 40% of the eligible voters, 40% of the over 18-year-old citizens in California. Mm-hmm. And so okay. we would be matching – we'd actually be matching 28, 2008 uh, primary, that special election that we had, um, which was a really real high watermark for us. Um, we'd be matching that in our 
percentage of eligible voters, we'd be below that in our percentage of registered voters because there was just a lot less registered voters. Is that the best way to describe it? Should it be the percentage, those voting compared with those who are eligible rather than those voting compared with those who are registered? Yeah, I mean, it's traditionally always been those voting divided by those registered. And so we're probably going to always be stuck with that. But um, it is probably fair to maybe provide both metrics. And that's Uh what we're doing. It's what I've been doing on Twitter is showing both metrics as a way of like looking at the at the electorate. Can, can you tell if there's a difference in uh, participation or turnout between people who register in the traditional way as opposed to people who register with motor voter or people who register yeah. online or same day? I mean, yeah, one of the things that we do for campaigns is we. Uh, we allow this targeting based on likely voter universes, and likely voter universes yeah. will take into account whether somebody is what we call an active registrant, meaning that they went out and sought a registration. Um, a perfect example of this is somebody registered to vote online. They're doing it by reaching out and getting the voter registration. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen data as an example. People who register to vote online the nights of the political debates are like super voters. Like they, they turn out in huge numbers because they're registering to vote because they saw something on TV that pissed them off, right? Um, or energized them. Uh, then there's this passive voter registration pool, which is largely people who register to vote um, at the DMV and maybe don't have prior vote registration history. And that passive registration pool is traditionally a lot lower turnout. Um, it's not to say that they're dead weight on the voter file. They're, um, you know, they're potential voters, um, but they generally just don't show up in the same numbers. The, um, the younger voters not participating in a rate that I think a lot of people, at least for Sanders, that people expected, what's, what's going on with that, do well, you think? We're going to still is Sanders himself kind of an irascible, curmudgeon fud, or is it something just you know uh, systemic with younger voters who don't seem to participate? It's always been the rap on them, but is that still true? Is that accurate? we're going to have to really look and see what did happen after we get all this data in? Yeah. Um, I mean, anecdotally, we saw long lines at college campuses with people doing same day registration, and we've seen um, much more activity among young people. And I would expect to see young people's turnout being higher than in the 2016 mm-hmm. primary or 2008 primary. Do you remember what the, what those numbers were? No, not off the top of my head, but okay. you know, um, uh, you know, we'll do the analysis to yeah. see like how the young vote has changed. Um, and we might do it both ways. We might say, okay, what is a today's 18 to 24 year old or 18 to 35 year old turnout relative to that same population in 2016, 2008? We might also take the population of, say, millennials and see how their turnout has changed as they've gotten older. Um, you know, the, the turnout rate for young people, um, it, it can be a function of organic things and it can be a function of mechanical things. I always like talking about these things as being separated. The organic things are motivation, interest, you know, uh, willingness to go vote, trust that the system works for them and matters, feeling that they have a role in the process. And that organic interest in voting will increase as they get older and older and older and become more engaged and, and maybe just become more interested in politics. Yeah. Then there's the mechanical. Um, you're registered to vote, but you just moved to another apartment or you're sleeping on your friend's couch or you're going to college and move dorm rooms or you don't know where your polling place is. You know, older voters in part vote because they're homeowners. Their polling place is the same place every time. They've done it all the time. They have a spouse that says, hey, did you get your ballot? Young people don't necessarily always have a peer saying to them, like, hey, let's go vote. But most spouses, you know, rib their other spouse, like, hey, your ballot's over there. You haven't voted yet. 
And so another family argument. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, so yeah, I, I, what population of voters just vote so their wife or husband stops nagging them? <laughs> you know, and interestingly, maybe probably just a Twitter thing, but I've noticed how many people said, "Oh yeah, I have this you know, either ex boyfriend or, or spouse that says just fill this out and drop it off for me." Yeah, yeah, thought, yeah. It's inconceivable to me that I would do this. Not that I don't trust Liv's judgment, but uh, yeah, it's weird. But apparently, that's a thing. I don't know. So. Um, uh, the the mechanics though of voting create these kind of like disadvantages for young people because you know they aren't living in the same house you know voting at the same place yeah. over and over and over they haven't developed the patterns yet they they might not know where their ballot is or what house it got delivered it got delivered to their parents' house or it got delivered to their old dorm room or when your son lost his house. right John uh, he found it he did find but he lost like, <laughs> he temporarily lost it. Yeah, 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 sure, exactly. So, um, so I, you know, if I think a lot of what we've done with the automatic voter registration um, has helped to uh, try to help keep these young people registered. So you think the regional voting centers have helped or hurt or vote centers is going to get a little. Uh, it's going to get a. It, it was under trial, I think, with a cycle with yeah. um, the light. number of people, the number of counties that converted to vote centers yeah. um, is going to be interesting to do some analysis of. And L.A., I mean, my God, uh they there there was a lot of consternation about yeah, what yeah. happened in LA and um you know i was texting with the social, folks at the secretary of state's office you know at midnight on election night like when is la going to update and the response was there's still people in line Whoa. i was like oh my god what are you talking about um so what's wrong with you know you're a political pro so let me ask you what's wrong with the precinct system where you just went around, you know, around the corner to your neighbor's garage, and your neighbors were there voting, and maybe they had, I don't know, a total of, I don't know, a couple hundred people on the rolls, that's all it was, and somebody was volunteering, and you did your civic duty, and you had kind of a, a nice time, you know, rather than going schlepping yeah, a few miles. Let's, what's wrong with that? You know, put a record, on, money, but put a record on the phonograph yeah, and, uh, and yeah. vote with paper ballots. Um, now, Wait, isn't that the Biden message, actually? It no. is, yeah, phonograph. Um, so... The traditional traditional precincts um, are fine. Um, the vote center system does allow you to have a lot more capacity to deal with people who got the wrong ballot or yeah. want to vote, but they aren't in their precinct. You know, one of the things that's nice yeah. about the vote centers, you don't, it's not geographically fixed. You can vote at a vote center near your work or at your kid's school or whatever. I literally, um, on election morning, I went to Sac State to go do a radio thing and there was a vote center, like, I, where I pulled up, it said vote here. I was like, okay, I guess I'll vote here. But you couldn't do that in the old precinct system. You yeah, had to vote, right. yeah. like, geographically at your area. Totally true. And, um, you know, one of the great things on the new system is if you don't have your ballot or you're just walking up, uh, you know, not a vote-by-mail voter, and you go to a vote center, you can walk into any vote center in the county, and they'll print out the precinct for you. They'll Either on the machine or they'll get you a ballot, and that ballot will have your local school board race and your local water district race oh, and all yeah. that stuff, even if you're nowhere near your All the stuff for going really, really, really I mean, Your local yeah. county central committee Yeah, race. like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's a great example of that. Um, but, um, you know, so there's... There are real benefits yeah. to the vote centers. Um, there's been research that shows that they do help 
this model that came out of Colorado, oh, yeah. the Vote Center, the Voters Choice Act model of mailing people ballots and then allowing them to come to vote centers to fix any problems or vote in person if they want to and, is kind of a better model. And we had an early turnout of something like what three point seven million votes cast before the election. Is that right? Yeah, when it came to when on Tuesday that number ticked up to four point one two five million, mm-hmm. and that four point one two five million was reflective of. Mostly people who had turned in their ballot by Friday, some turned in their ballot by Saturday. It's not necessarily that every county, like when we call them and say, hey, get us your list of most recently voted, not every county drops everything and gets that to us. Um, Some counties were providing it to us every hour on Election Day, which is incredible. Um, It's a real change. Um, Do you have any estimate on the delegate split uh, for the convention between Biden and Sanders? I saw one number, and it's hasn't changed since a couple of days ago of uh, Sanders at about 213, 220, and Biden with 166. That's for the California split. It's just California, yeah. yeah. Um, but are we getting a better handle on that now? or uh, Not a better handle. I, right now, it still sort of shows Pete Buttigieg winning a congressional or winning a delegate in uh, the 36th congressional district, I think it is. It's did the Warren, one that has Palm Springs. Did he delegates? Um, no, not in the current. Oh, wait, no, she did. Yeah, yeah of course she did. Okay. Yeah, she did in some of the. Um, and and I think that her vote total might increase a little bit. Um, As the count goes forward? You know? Yeah, I mean, if you're a voter, essentially we were talking about this election like two Californias. There was yeah. the California that voted in the first 27 days and the California that voted in the last two days. And the California in the last two days had this more binary choice between Sanders and Biden, uh-huh. but Warren was still in the race. And I think a couple things happened with that. Like if somebody was a Pete Buttigieg supporter... Um, some of them, and our own polling showed that some of them would go to Biden, probably the the majority, or or Warren, and then some even would go to Sanders. You know, there are Pete Buttigieg to Sanders voters, but as that vote from those candidates, and as the message about consolidation happened, and honestly, as Bloomberg lost a lot of support in the last few, couple days, yeah. like nobody was talking about Bloomberg, everybody was talking about Biden in this kind of consolidation, um, which I think cost him with the late votes. But uh, there might have been a little bit of an uptick for Warren in the end. And if, so if, when she, she might end up getting... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. She might end up, you know, I don't know if she'll get to the statewide delegate, yeah. 15%, but she could get close to it and she'd probably pick up some more delegates in the congressional districts. Do you have some notion where her supporters are going to go now that she's dropped? Well, when she's dropped, the ones that are pledged delegates to her, she gets to allocate to whoever she wants on the second ballot. Yeah. Um, really? She has that power? Yeah, I mean, she has that quote-unquote power. The fact is is that nobody has power over their delegates. That's what I thought, yeah. But they, um, they're pledged to the candidate, and uh, they're essentially, they're not picked by the candidate, but they're picked as a pledged delegate. They run for delegate based on that they're going to support Elizabeth Warren or whatever, and that'll happen. That process will happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they... Those would presumably go to whoever she endorses on a second ballot, but I don't think we're going to need to be there now. Well, what about? Uh, well, you don't you don't think you're going to you think someone's going to have a majority going in? Yeah, even without super delegates. Yeah, I think that's wow, much more likely now. What, what do you think the impact is going to be of Bloomberg's money now? If he supports Biden, he pulled out supports Biden. Does mm-hmm. that mean he supports him with resources and money? Is that going to play out? How would that have any? Does that mean that Biden gets all his staffers? I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. You Paul just got, Treat, are you going? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what he's going to do yeah. now. I think that uh, I, I think that we've heard that, you know, just kind of like if you believe what you read in the papers and on Twitter. We that do. We he's, do. Oh, you do? Okay, yeah. Then um, 
you know, he's committed to going the whole distance through November and making sure that he spends money to, uh, you know, stop Trump from winning re-election. And he said he's endorsing Biden. So we'll see if he plays now in the primary to kind of lock it down for Biden and putting money into that. Yeah. Or if he waits until the general and in the general, you know, his... Uh, Will his message simply be anti-Trump or will he also be doing things to try to make sure that Democrats, you know, either win the Senate or hold all the congressional seats that that are in play? Does that hurt his message at all? If, if, you know, Biden winds up getting a lot of dough from Bloomberg, uh, I don't know if that'll play out like that. But if he does, does that hurt him at all as a candidate saying, hey, basically Joe Biden is Bloomberg's puppet, that kind of thing? No, I think that uh, people will definitely understand that you know, if Biden's doing stuff, it's just going to be independent expenditure stuff, yeah. you know. And um, the fact that he was already a nominee or, you know, a candidate. Yeah. Um, and then he's continuing to spend money. It seems less uh, kind of nefarious. It's not like some big co- corporation coming in. So I, I feel like he's going to be able to do okay with putting together putting together an independent expenditure and, and putting resources together. Um, and maybe he'll just be all anti-Trump and not do anything that's really specifically pro-Bloomberg, so, pro-Biden. Pro Biden. So um, Warren has dropped out or is going to announce that she's dropping out. You, in your polling, have looked at people's second choices. Where do her voters go? I mean, the, the conventional... Well, so the, the challenge is that the, 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 the Capital Weekly poll uh, did throughout the lifespan of the tracker from you know, April of 2019 until February, uh, continue to ask this question of like, what's your second choice and what candidate do you find, want to know more about? And, and uh, you know, if electability wasn't concerned, who would you support? Those, those follow-up questions to the survey in the survey allowed us to have uh, more context for kind of understanding the electorate. And, and that who would be your second choice thing um, was interesting, but it might not be pure. It might not be completely translatable to now because, um, you know, if somebody was supporting Warren and they said their second choice is Pete, does that mean that that person goes to Biden or Sanders? We don't know. Um, uh, so it's less clear because we weren't in a binary, um, you know, election cycle for the first, you know year of this contest. We were in a multi-way uh, election cycle. And so um, I think we'd have to resurvey people to say like, hey, you used to vote for, you used to support Warren. Who would you support now between these two candidates? We never asked that. And But do you have, just through your work and your experience, do you have a, well, I, a I, guess I, on how they're going to bring My it? guess is this. Um, I love how I say like, nobody could know and then I'll just tell you. Yeah. Um, my like guess is this. Like every political pundit on earth. Oh God, yeah. So my guess is this, and it might be, It'll take maybe a second to get through this, but the uh, I think naturally a lot of the Elizabeth Warren supporters were also uh, Bernie supporters and that they were definitely kind of in the same lane. But as we got closer to Election Day, I think that there was a real consolidation by Sanders of a lot of those most progressive um, voters and Warren's support kind of became more heavily establishment people who either wanted a woman uh, felt that she was a good counter, a good alternative to Sanders, um, and and or people who just might like Sanders' message, but just didn't care for his style or personality, or you know, kind of his um, anti B 
big D Democratic kind of establishment uh, message. So um, I feel like the the percentage of Warren support that came from otherwise Sanders supporters is probably getting smaller and smaller as we got closer to Election Day. And so when she drops out, I think that her supporters do go more to Biden than you would have expected, Mm. say, if she dropped out eight months ago when most of her support would have gone to Sanders because her the percentage of her support that was coming from otherwise Sanders voters was just so much greater back then. But they've already left. But a lot of them have left by now. Yeah. yeah. Especially as the race got super binary, you yeah. know, heading into Tuesday. Well, when you, you know, you talked about the, the party, quote unquote, the party decides theory of primaries. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, on social media, you see this immediate backlash. The DNC chose this. And I was thinking, what did they do? Send an email to every single black voter in South Carolina? It's like, can you talk about the actual party decides process? Like, what is the, were there, you know, was Harry Reid busily calling, you know, every guy in, uh, or every person running in a, in a, a major campaign and saying, hey, you need to do this and whatever, or, you know, how, yeah. how does that work? So, um, I think that the party decides theory is not necessarily to mean like this monolithic, like there's this war room in the DNC and the RNC and that they decide, right? Um, and then just send other soldiers to tell them everything to do. But that the course of the primary process, the importance of fundraising and endorsers and this kind of sense of what's best for the party um, does start to dominate the race. And what happened going into South Carolina was potentially a few different things that might have had the effect of the party decides theory. Um, A, we could add a situation where... um, you know, as Buttigieg said, that he felt that it was better for the party for him to step down because what he was essentially doing was denying the establishment candidate the opportunity to, to be, a, uh, you know, to win in, in, at the convention. Um, that he was essentially saying he was dropping out because to not drop out was to ensure that the kind of anti-establishment candidate Sanders would win. Um, and so there's some overt kind of party decides element there. But it's also equally true that he might have just looked at his polling in Super Tuesday states and said, oh, this is going to go bad. <laughs> uh, I think I'll step out aside elegantly and, you know, take this posture of doing it for the better good. But then part of it was like, you know, for either him or Steyer or Klobuchar that uh, they wanted to avoid the embarrassment or avoid the political hit that came with coming in you know, fourth and fifth around the country and then dropping out anyway, you know. And then also with, by dropping out and, and giving an endorsement, they may have more of a role in if yeah. Biden wins. And so maybe there was some overt, like, people who judge has been promised a great speaking spot at the convention. Um, I mean, if we have the convention, who knows? Uh, the coronavirus convention. Um, the, uh, you know, or uh, he felt that dropping out would allow him to kind of parlay that into something else down the road. I find, honestly, that a lot of those kind of ideas that I'm going to drop out and I'm going to turn that into a cabinet post, they aren't, like, expressed. That was my first thought. Yeah, I mean, but it's not like... In my experience, people don't really just give out the, like, I'm going to promise you this, and then you drop out yeah. there. It's really never that clear. Um, but, um, I, you know, it, so it's not like there's a 
man behind the curtain doing the party decides thing. I think some of it just kind of happens through the course of um, people understanding organic. the roles. It's more organic. More organic and it's more, yeah. And it, and it, um, and whatever it is, it sure as hell seemed to have happened this cycle for the Democrats and it surely didn't happen in 2016 for the Republicans. Yeah. Have you ever seen that kind of a reversal in that kind of change in the way the election was going all of a sudden, you know, a week ago or a little bit more, Biden was done. Oh, my God. And this has been the craziest, man. hasn't it? I mean, just like to step back. And again, California being the biggest delegate hall of, the, of Super Tuesday and this threat to the establishment um, of Sanders walking out of California with enough delegates to lock down at least a plurality at the convention, I think created a explosive environment that final weekend. And um, I think an outcome that couldn't have been written if we'd come together and written, come up with like a political novel. I don't think you could have dreamed up something this dynamic happening so fast. And I don't think there's anything we've seen in modern political history that has been the equivalent. So, um, is there a lesson here? Maybe voting early isn't the best idea, considering how things change in the last thirty-six yeah, voting hours. Voting early is great. You know, <laughs> you know that was one of the things that somebody said, like, "Oh, well, you know, your vote didn't count if you didn't if you voted early." Yeah, but it does yeah, count because your delegate is still going to go you know, if it, you got a delegate. So. Yeah, I mean, it does count, um, and. Saying it doesn't is the same as saying that anybody voted for Elizabeth Warren's vote doesn't count because now she's dropped out. Or, you know, your vote for Sanders didn't count because he doesn't end up becoming the final final nominee. Voting isn't about picking the winner. Voting is about expressing your opinion. And if you express your opinion and the candidate doesn't win, it doesn't make a difference. It's just like saying when I go cheer at a Kings game um, that all my cheering doesn't count if – uh, they don't make the playoffs, right? Uh, if and they somebody, won't, because you're going to the Kings game. I'm going to the Kings game, that's right, tonight. Um, but uh, uh, Or, you know, if I jump to my feet with, uh, you know, when somebody launches a crazy three-point shot in the last second of a game, and I scream and jump to my feet and it doesn't go in, do I sit there and go, darn it, why did I jump onto my feet for that? That was, you know, no, you don't. This is part of, voting is an expression. Voting is a an engagement. Voting is not about, like, you know, making sure that every presidential election cycle you voted for the person who ended up winning. Yeah, yeah it is fascinating. I mean, there was that tweet that it was immediately removed by Marion Williamson saying, oh, this is a coup when, uh, you know, on Super Tuesday. It's like, no, people voting is not a coup. Yeah. It's specifically and expressly as far from a coup as you could get. It's yeah. democracy. Yeah, yeah. And it's really funny that there are many people who feel like if their candidate that they voted for doesn't win, they were ripped off. It's like, no, that's democracy. That's what you're supposedly supporting yeah. is... That sometimes you don't win. That's yeah, the yeah. nature of it. Also, be made that you want your party to win, and by waiting until you see who the strongest member of your party is by voting, you can try to get that person more delegates going into the convention. This is strategic voting thing is just such yeah. who we. I I'm a strategic person. I'm a voter, um, but you know what? I how I vote. I vote thinking to myself, Am I going to be proud of this vote in twenty years? You know, and uh, first time I voted. For I Ralph for, Nader and no, your I, I voted for Jesse Jackson. <laughs> oh, um, in 1988, who had basically the same agenda that Sanders has right oh, now. He, he was like amazing. very similar. He was very much like amazing the Sanders delegate candidacy. changes. Yeah, though. the Rainbow Coalition had some amazing things in California yeah. about how you yeah. pick delegates. The voters couldn't figure it out. There were lines at the poll. It was amazing. That was so. Just, uh, um, 
I think the but I've never regretted that. Too. I've never regretted that. And I met Jesse Jackson at the when Gil Cedillo had his when Gil Cedillo won his first assembly race in a special yeah. election. The went to a Mexican restaurant for that celebration, the election night party. Um, I wish I could tra- teleport back to that election night party again. It was the first time I met Alex Padilla, um, wow. young staffer, like. And I'd heard about him. There he is. Must have been in diapers, basically. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and uh, this was in yeah, this was in '98. Uh, uh, and I met Alex Padilla. I sat down with Jesse Jackson and talked yeah. to him about how I'd voted for him for president. My first vote. Um, I mean, I love Gil. Uh, that room is just like the room to be in. Uh, cool. It was kind of an amazing slice of uh, California national politics. But uh, never regretted that vote. And I hope that people, when they vote in this election, especially those voting for the first time, voted for somebody that they can look back you know, yeah. that many years later and feel like they never regretted it. Yeah. And whether or not the candidate wins shouldn't be the metric or whether or not their candidate was even in the race when they got done. I, people on Twitter were like, I'm voting for, for Yang even though he's out. I was like, good on you. Go for it. Like, his name's there. Check the box. You want to? Go for it. That's, it, I don't, you know, it, 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 voting is, I think, you know, it's a beautiful right that we have and it shouldn't be just like, gamesmanship it should be an expression of values and go cheer for whoever you want to very good i think on that note we can end the podcast i think that's a good note paul thank you very much tim foster thank Thank, you thank you Uh, this is john howard we will visit with you next time around